So as most of you know, we're coming through the letter to the Colossians here. Last week we're in, we were in chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And we're still going to be there today, but we're going to zone in on one phrase from verse 23. So I want you to look down in verse 23. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, and here's the phrase. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That's what we're zoning in today. I believe the NAS says, not moving away from the hope of the gospel. Don't move away from the hope of the gospel. Let's pray and we'll dig into that. Father, thank you for your word. And God, everything that you intend to say to us through this scripture, God, I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to hear. Open the eyes of our heart, God. Open the ears of our heart, God, that we might see, that we might hear. Father, we need your help during this time. God, we know our own sinfulness. They can take glorious words of life. And they land on us like they land on dead people. God, we know, we know our tendencies. So God, we acknowledge that we need your help. We need your help, God, to feel the warning that ought to be felt from this passage of Scripture. So please help us, Lord. Come and be with us, God, through the preaching of your Word, God, through the opening of your Word right now, the opening of your Scripture. God, come and be with us and speak to us now. Holy Spirit, you can bring conviction where it's needed, Lord. You can fill us with encouragement, God, where you mean to do that. You can do all of these things. And I just pray all across this room now as we read your word, God, and we meditate upon it, that you would do just that, God, that you would help us. Thank you, Lord, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so we're on that phrase right here, not shifting, verse 23, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. If you said it like a, a negative command, it would be, don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Don't do that. If you said it in a, a positive command, you would say it something like this, be immovable in the hope of the gospel. Be unshakable in the hope of the gospel. Let me give us sort of a review where we have been in the first 23 verses of Colossians chapter 1. So we have Paul writing from prison to the Colossian church. He's writing to a pretty much a healthy church and yet they're on the verge of destruction. False teaching has come in. There's many paths that they can take right now to be destroyed forever. Although they seem to be at the front end of this, they're for the most part they seem to be a healthy church. And the flow of thought through the first chapter here is Paul gives a greeting to them. He greets them. He tells them his thankfulness for them. He tells them what he prays for them. And at the end of that prayer, that prayer, he said, this is what I pray for you guys. At the end of that prayer, he begins to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. From about verse 12 all the way to verse 22. He is exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. Who he is, the image of the invisible God. Firstborn over all creation, the creator of all things. 
All things created by Him, through Him, for Him. He is preeminent, supreme in everything. He's just lifted up high. And this one is the one who has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the, into the kingdom of His beloved Son. This is the one that took wretched people that deserve nothing but hell and has redeemed us, reconciled us through the death of Jesus Christ. And so this is exalted in the very beginning of chapter 1. So what I want to do, I want to read verses 21 through 23. The sentence in which our phrase we're focusing on is in. I want to read it and just give a little review of what we looked at last week. Verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So what we see in these verses, verse 21, we see the depravity of man. We talked about that last week, right? That every single person in the room, every single person in the Colossian church and at Grace Community Church and in this room today could be described like this. Alienated from God. Banished from God. Haters of God, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds, evildoers before God. We could all be described that way. And just like I said last week, if you feel like, wait a minute, I can't be described that way. I've never been a hater of God and an evildoer. That is the deceitfulness of sin that has deceived you to make you think that you are better than you actually are. But then it turns the corner and it doesn't leave us there, right? It takes us through the depravity of man. We are fallen creatures who have broken his law that deserve nothing but his punishment. And it turns the corner and it says, but you, he is reconciled. He's reconciled you through what? How did he reconcile us? It says through the death of his son. In the body of his flesh through death, Jesus Christ reconciled haters of God. Which means he took our sin. And our wrath and the punishment that we're supposed to take for our sin. And our sin was laid upon Him at the cross. Can you see it? Your sin lifted off of you and put on the Savior at the cross. And the punishment that was supposed to come down on us came barreling down on Him instead. He took it for us. He died the death we were supposed to die. He bore our wrath. No wrath left for us to take. So that He can present us one day and He will. Holy. Blameless. Above reproach before him. So what we see is we see in verse 21 the depravity of man. What we see in verse 22 is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ has come to die for depraved people like us. And then what you see in verse 23 are the conditions. And we know that the conditions for you to enter in and to have this reconciliation before God. Is that you must put your hope in Christ. You must really and truly, not that fake faith that our world speaks about, that even the demons believe and they tremble, but the faith that's talked about in God's Word, that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you put your hope in Him, and when you do that, when you truly put your faith in Christ, faith continues steadfast, faith perseveres until the end. And that's why this verse says, you have been reconciled, if what? If you continue in the faith. 
We know that you've truly been reconciled to God. We know that you truly had faith in Christ. If what? If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast and are not moved away, not shifted from the hope of the gospel. What we know is that when somebody is reconciled to God, we spoke about this last week, when somebody is truly reconciled to God and they put their faith in Christ, many, many things happen to them. Think about it. Jesus becomes their great high priest interceding on their behalf continually. The Spirit of God comes to indwell them. God Almighty in man. He comes to indwell them. They're given a new heart. They're made new creations. Which is the reason that when you have faith in Christ, you persevere to the end. Because God makes you persevere. So we see the conditions in verse 23. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith. But those who are truly reconciled are those who continue on and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And so I want to, like I said, I want to zone in on this phrase. Not shifting. I want you to see it as a warning. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And the whole Colossian letter is a warning in a sense. It's very much so a warning to the Colossian church. Think about it like this. Satan not only has schemes to keep you, keep you away from Christ. He not only has schemes to keep you from coming to Christ. But he has schemes to drag you away from Christ forever. Satan has schemes in place for that. And so this is written as a warning. A warning not to be moved away from that mountain of hope called the gospel. Don't be moved away. So it serves as a warning. Uh, the Colossian letter is not exactly the same as the warning in Galatians. I want you to think about that contrast for a minute. If you read the, the letter to the Galatians, the warning there is extremely stern. There's no, not a whole lot of greeting, not a whole lot of I'm thankful for you guys. He comes right out of the gates in Galatians. He says, I cannot believe that you have turned away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And he begins to rebuke them right off the bat because in Galatia were people who had fallen to this area, to this error. They were, they were on their face. They had walked away from the hope of the gospel. But in Colossus, toned down a little bit. They're at the beginning of this. It's, it's a danger that they might become like the Galatian churches. But they're not yet there. And so what I want you to do is I want you to think about that. Do you feel the warning in that? That maybe we are not. I don't consider us exactly like the Galatian churches. Now, we definitely have that propensity, no doubt. But what I mean is we're not exactly like the Galatian churches and that we have not completely walked out on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't receive that kind of rebuke. But do you feel the warning? That here's this church that for the most part is a healthy church in Colossus. And yet they're on the verge of destruction if they walk away, if they listen to these false teachers, if they're led astray. So they're on the verge of destruction. Do you feel that warning? Have you ever thought about Grace Community Church? So you that are members of this church, have you ever thought about this church years from now, maybe even generations from now, maybe even our children and our children's children if Christ tarries that long? Have you ever thought of it being a church that has walked away from the hope of the gospel? And does that break your heart? Does it make you weep? You think about our church having walked away from Jesus Christ. You think about churches in our area that have walked away from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they preach heresy. The people that believe what they preach, they, they go to hell forever. 
Those churches, for the most part, didn't start out that way. They didn't intend for it to be this way. Do you feel that warning? And Colossians is written as a warning to us. The first, once you think about this, I want to show you this throughout the, the letter to the Colossians, that this is a warning. The first hint that we get of that warning is right there in verse 23. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Now I'm going to show you the warning throughout this letter. But I want you to see that as a foundation. It's a foundation. If we're going to understand, what does it mean? What are they in danger of doing? The foundation, the ultimate thing, is that they would walk away. They would shift from the hope of the gospel. They would be dislodged from the hope of the gospel. I want to share this quote with you. This was, I was reading a, a sermon from Charles Spurgeon on this exact phrase, not moving away from the hope of the gospel. And to open up this sermon, Spurgeon starts off, Charles Spurgeon, he starts off, Speaking about um, Satan's, uh, the way Satan puts up certain obstacles to get in the way so that people do not come to Christ. He, he puts before us like a, it's like a war and Satan is, is against us. It's a war and he's keeping us from coming to Calvary. And then he says this, but brethren, the battle does not end when by a desperate rush a man has come to Christ. In many it assumes a new form. The enemy now attempts to drag the trembler from his refuge and eject him from his stronghold. It is difficult to get at the hope of the gospel, but quite as difficult to keep it so as not to be moved away from it. If Satan spends great power in keeping us from the hope, he uses equal force in endeavoring to drag us away from it. And equal cunning in endeavoring to allure us from it. Hence the apostle tells us not to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. The, the exhortation is necessary in the presence of an imminent danger. So I want you to feel this as a warning. That Satan would try to remove you. Pull you away from your refuge and your stronghold in Christ Jesus. And He would aim to drag you away. I want you to feel this as a warning. Very quickly, what is the hope of the gospel? What is the hope of the gospel? I point you back to verse 5. Where we get a very similar phrase. Look at it. Very quickly. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth. The gospel. So you have the hope of the gospel. And when you get into about verse 12 of this chapter, all the way to verse 22, that's what's being explained to us, the hope of the gospel. Two main things are mentioned in verses 12 through 22. Who Christ Jesus is, the glorious creator of the universe, Lord, sovereign, supreme over all. Jesus Christ. And then what He has done for us. And that He has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness. Brought us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And that He has reconciled to Himself desperate sinners that deserve hell. This is the hope of the gospel. And that one day we're going to be presented before Him. Holy, blameless, above reproach in His sight. The hope, the hope of the gospel is the glorious message about Christ. And our hope in that message... Our hope in that glorious message about Christ. And the warning here is this. Guys, don't be moved away from it. Let nothing dislodge you from what we've been looking at in 
verse 5 and verses 12 through 22. Let nothing move you away from hoping that. Let nothing move you away. Nothing dislodge you. That's the warning that's here. And there's several things that can try to move you away. Worldly temptations can try to move you away from the hope of the gospel. Worldly pursuits can move you away from the hope of the gospel. False doctrine can move you away from the hope of the gospel. But the warning here is be steadfast, immovable. Don't move away from it. Don't budge. Look at chapter 2. I want you to see this warning continue on throughout the letter to the Colossians. Chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to this. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those in Laodicea. So he said, I want you to know, guys, about this struggle. I've got this struggle for you. I've got this fight for you. I've got this conflict within me over you, Colossian church. I've got this struggle in me over you. And you continue reading. He says, I want you to be encouraged in the faith. I want, you to, I want you to grow in the faith. I want you to move forward. And look at verse 4. I say this in order. Why are you saying this, Paul? I say this in order. Then no one may delude you with plausible arguments. You feel the warning in that? I say this that nobody might deceive you. Don't be deceived. And don't be deceived by these plausible arguments. That means they're persuasive arguments. They seem so persuasive. They seem so true. They seem so trustworthy. But don't let them move you from the hope of the gospel, please. I have a struggle for you. You see the warning in that. What happens in the rest of Colossians chapter 2 is you get an unfolding of different plausible arguments. They can move them away from the hope of the gospel. From, from legalism to charismania to worldly pursuits. All these things that can move you away from the hope of the gospel. I'll give you a few examples. Look at verse 8. We're going to read verse 8, 16, and 18. And what, the first thing I want you to see is this. Notice the various types of lures that are being put out there. Notice the various types of lures that are being put out there for you to bite on Various types. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. Do you feel the warning in this? See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Look at verse 16. Listen to the warning. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with, with regard to a festival. Or a new moon or Sabbath. Look at verse 18. Hear the warning. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. You see this comment? You see this? this this variety of things that can lead you away from the hope of the gospel. These are plausible arguments. Plausible arguments that can remove you from Christ. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the common denominator in those verses we just read. The common denominator in those verses we just read is each one of them are meant to move you away from one thing. The hope of the gospel. And so what you see over and over again is all that variety of arguments, plausible arguments, are to move you away from Christ. Look at verse 8 again. See to it that no one takes you captive by. And then look at the last 
four words, and not according to Christ. Not according. These things. These are things that are not according to Christ. Look at verse sixteen. Verse sixteen. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of. And then look at verse seventeen. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. See in the common denominator. Verse verse eighteen. Let no one disqualify you in these things. Look at verse 19. And not holding fast to the head. The head who is Christ. So here's the common denominator. A variety of plausible arguments listed and that are not listed in this chapter of Scripture. A a variety of plausible arguments that can move you away from the hope of the gospel. Let me say it another way. They can move you away from Christ. They can move you away from holding fast to the head who is Jesus. Do you feel warned by that? Do you feel that warning? I want you to feel the seriousness of this warning. Think about, go back with me in chapter 1. If I'm looking at verse 23 and I've got the foundation of this warning here. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Do you take that warning serious enough? Now we know that our tendency is to not take the warnings of the Bible serious enough, right? Think about, I thought of the example of Mark chapter 9. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands and go to hell. You see that warning, is there sin there? If there's sin there, cut it off. If something causing you to sin, cut it off. And it doesn't say cut it off so that you won't be an unhealthy Christian. It says cut it off lest you go to hell. Do we feel that warning like that? And so our tendency is to not feel the warnings of the scripture as we ought to. So what about this warning? Not being budged from the hope of the gospel. To, to help you, to help us all feel that warning, the weight of it, I want you to think about what's at stake. What's at stake here? When it tells us, not sh- when it says not shifting from the hope of the gospel, what is at stake here? I'll give you three things that are at stake. Number one is eternity is at stake. Eternity is at stake. It does not say this. It doesn't say, hey, if you shift away from the hope of the gospel, you're going to be an unhealthy church. We're going to take you off the nine marks website. It doesn't say that. It said that if you read verses 21 through 23, he said, whom he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, that he might present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If, if you continue in the faith, Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. See, what's at stake here is not being an unhealthy church or a healthy church. What's at stake is heaven or hell. Eternity is at stake. That puts weight on this warning. Do you feel it? Number two is this. The glory of Christ is at stake. The glory of of Christ is at stake here. If you, if you... Continue in the hope of the gospel. If you stand firm in the hope of the gospel, you'll glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you move away from the hope of the gospel, you will demean your Savior. Look at chapter 2. Go back to verse 8 again. 
want you to see that in these verses. Remember in chapter 1, we've already had an explosion of who Christ is. Just this amazing worship of Jesus, King Jesus. And, and here we get to chapter 2, verse 8. And you get that initial warning. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. And it continues on. At the end of verse 8, not according to Christ. And I love this in verse 9. Look what he does. Verse 9. For in Him... So don't do this. Why? For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. And it goes on and on all the way to verse 15. Almost as if Paul just kind of, he loses it for a moment. He begins to exalt Christ again. You see what happens here? You get moved away by philosophy or any other thing that can move you away from the hope of the gospel. You demean Christ. You demean Him. Right here, as we hold fast to the hope of the gospel, we have a chance to glorify Him. So eternity is at stake. The glory of Christ is at stake and us heeding this warning. And then I'll mention the third thing. Number three, the profitability of every aspect of your life. That sounds heavy. The profitability of every other aspect of your life. And here's what I mean. If you shift from the hope of the gospel, if you don't heed the warning and you shift from the hope of the gospel, every single aspect of your life will suffer because of it. If you shift from the hope of the gospel, think about it like this. The hope of the gospel is the foundation for everything in your life. Everything. Think about different, think about Colossians. The gospel is laid out for us in chapters 1 and chapter 2, even a defense of that gospel. You get to chapter 3 and chapter 4 and you get into practical things like how you should behave. Your kindness and your humility and what you should do with God's word and how you should be a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or a child. It gets into these practical aspects of your life. But it begins with chapters 1 and 2 because that is the foundation for you living out everything else in your life. Ephesians does the exact same thing. We've talked about that many times, right? Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, it lays, it lays it on thick. The gospel of Jesus Christ, who He is, what He's done, what we have received because of His work at Calvary. And then chapters 4 moves into every other aspect of life because it's the foundation so if you move away from the foundation, if you move away from the hope of the gospel, everything else, every other aspect of life becomes meaningless. It loses its foundation. Listen to this quote from C.J. Mahaney. Somebody asked me last week, I quoted part of this, and somebody asked me where I got it from. Well, I found out where I got it from. Here it is. The gospel isn't one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building where all the classes take place. Rightly approached, all the topics you'll study and focus on as a believer will be offered to you within the walls of the glorious gospel. Nothing in the Christian life can be rightly understood apart from God's grace through Jesus' death. They, and indeed all topics, should be studied through the lens of the gospel. And if that is true, and I say that it is, then, then if that's true, that means if you shift from the hope of the gospel, every other aspect of your life becomes meaningless. I want you to think about it like this. We tend to have a, a, an unbiblical category. At least we think about it in an unbiblical way. 
You know, you got those who have nothing to do with Jesus. They they hate they 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 don't believe the gospel. They're unbelievers. They don't walk with God. They don't claim. Maybe they claim atheism or something. And and then and then maybe also their actions. They're very immoral people, ungodly people. That's one category. And we have another category of those who have the hope of the gospel, have Jesus Christ saved, and they walk in accordance with that and morality and kindness and love and as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers. They walk it out. But here's this other category that we tend to think like this. Well, they don't have the hope of the gospel. They don't love Jesus Christ. They don't even acknowledge His existence. But man, they're very calm and they're very moral people and they're good husbands and, and, and good fathers, good wives, good mothers. That's how they are. And we almost tend to think of like, well, this is better than that one over there, right? At least they're not immoral. At least they're not bad fathers. You know, at least they've got this going for them. And, and I just want you to think about this. Think about this for a moment. If Christ is all in all, if He is everything, that the very root of sin is that you replace Jesus Christ, the treasure, the glorious one, with something else. If that's at the very root of sin, then think about this. A Christ ignoring kindness is evil. A Christ ignoring humility is evil. It ignores Jesus. You can be a good father and ignore Jesus and it's evil. So this hope of the gospel, if you, if you are moved away from it, if you are dislodged from it, it affects everything else in life, every other aspect of life. So think with me. Ask your, your own soul this question. Do you feel this morning? Not being shifted, not shifting away, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Do you feel it personally? In your own soul. Do you feel it for us as a church? You feel warned by this for us as a church. Are, are, we, are we so far beyond that Galatian church that we don't even have to worry about this? Is that where we're at? You feel warned by it. Let me give you one more. Go to, go to Hebrews chapter 2 real quick. Before we dig into just a few specifics on not moving away from the hope of the gospel and what that might mean. Let me just lay one more, one more small but heavy layer of warning. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now I don't have time to to tell you what we have heard is. I don't have time to show you that in chapter 1. But what he's saying there is, listen, we have to give much closer attention to what we have heard. And you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he's saying the things about the Son, the things about Jesus, supreme overall, very similar things to what we've read in Colossians chapter 1. Christ Jesus and Him crucified for sinners. We must pay much closer attention to the things we have heard. You go test me on that. And it says, lest we do what? Lest we drift away. Here's the warning. We must pay much closer attention to Christ Jesus, Him crucified, the hope of the gospel. Pay much closer attention to it, lest we drift away. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... 
and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we how shall we escape? Do you feel the warning in that? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape if we move away from the hope of the gospel? We need to pay much closer attention to it. Let me move into some a little bit more specifics here, okay? I want to tell you this from two angles. One is in doctrine and one is in your affections. One is in doctrine and one is in affections. So the first thing I want to say is this. As we dig into specifically what does it mean to feel the warning of shifting from the hope of the gospel. Here's what I mean. Beware of shifting from the hope of the gospel in doctrine. In your doctrine, in, in teaching of God's word, beware of shifting from the hope of the gospel in doctrine. If you're back at Colossians chapter 1, we know at least partially the warning that's being put here about shifting from the hope of the gospel is a warning about false doctrine. It's a warning about shifting in doctrine. We know that verse 23 says, if indeed you continue in the faith. The faith. We know the faith there is this body of doctrine delivered. Jude chapter 1 verse 3. Delivered once and for all to the saints. Something's been delivered to the saints. This body of doctrine has been delivered to us through His Word. Continue earnestly in the faith. In chapter 2 verse 4 it says, I'm writing these things that no one would delude you through false teaching or delude you through plausible arguments. And so at least partially and I say in a major way False doctrine is in view in this warning, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Think about it, okay? Listen to me. False teaching abounds. It abounds. It abounded in this day, and it abounds in our day. False teaching is everywhere, and we need to beware of this, okay? You don't need to think lightly when you think about false teaching. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, right? Then him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. But when me and uh, Nick traveled to India, and we taught the uh, New Testament survey to pastors there in India, I remember studying, and Nick, you might remember this too, studying and preparing, and I'm going through New Testament survey. That means we're just giving overviews of every book in the New Testament. All through the New Testament, we're just giving overviews all the way through there. And something that just stood out to me again and again and again was this focus on sound doctrine. This focus on false teaching entering into the church. I realize that there are people that have a bad taste in their mouth for things like false doctrine or things like sound doctrine. I hope you have a bad taste for false doctrine. But you have a bad taste in your mouth for things like sound doctrine and words like that. But if you do a New Testament survey study, it is all over the place. In Galatians, that's what he's pressing into. You guys have moved away to another gospel. What are you doing? And 1 Timothy is the same thing. Timothy, I left you in Ephesus that you might command some to preach no other doctrine. It's all over the place in our New Testaments. It's a focus. We need to beware of false doctrine causing us to shift from the hope of the gospel. Go to 2 Timothy real quick. I want you to see just a pattern of this in 2 Timothy. This is Paul's final letter. Paul's dying letter, his letter from his deathbed. 
You know that if you just a careful reading of 2 Timothy, you know that to be true. So what's on Paul's mind? And his letter from his deathbed, what's on Paul's mind? What's there? What is he so concerned about when he's on his deathbed? And I just want to share a few verses scattered throughout this letter. Look at chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. If you back up two words, it says the gospel at the end of verse 10. The gospel, the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. So, so for the gospel, Paul says, I'm a preacher, a teacher, an apostle. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I believe, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That sound doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is able to guard it until that day. Verse 13. Listen to what he says. This is what he's concerned about on his deathbed. Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You see his concern about false doctrine. You see his, his concern from his deathbed about sound doctrine and sound teaching. It doesn't end there. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Speaking to Timothy. Hey, Timothy, what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. You know that sound doctrine you heard from me, Timothy? Entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Go down to verse 15. Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Verse 18, he speaks about those who have swerved from the truth. And they, they upset the faith of some. Go to chapter 3, verse 13. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, as for you, continue in what you learn and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Go down to chapter 4, verse 3. He's already told him in verse 2, preach the word, preach the word, preach the sound doctrine. Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So what was on Paul's mind? In this deathbed letter, what's on his mind? False teaching. The, the truth of the gospel being preserved through generation after generation after generation. This was on his heart. It's on his mind. Not just about the safety of Timothy. But Timothy, guard the gospel. Guard the sound doctrine. This is a big deal. So I want you to think about the different kind of gospel distortion that can come our way. Because I want you to be concerned. 
Not just from your deathbed, but right now, I want you to be concerned about sound doctrine and about things that can move us as a church away from the hope of the gospel. So there's gospel distortions. that They are innumerable. Do you know that? You can't know them all, and you sure enough can't study them all. But gospel distortions, things that distort the gospel, are innumerable. you got the things that probably most of us know about, the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormon distortion. You have things like that. You also have this. Maybe you would be less aware of this. Gospel distortions. That's what we're talking about. There's always going to be this pull. Listen to me. There will always be a pull on us to make the gospel more man-centered. You know that? There will always be a pull in this world until this world is done away and we see Christ to make the gospel more and more man-centered. And what I mean by that is man-centered as in the thing that we preach, the thing that we call the gospel is all about you and what you must do and what, what you have to accomplish. Rather than Christ Jesus and who He is and what He has accomplished and what He is accomplishing right now. You see the difference in a man-centered and a gospel-centered, excuse me, a God-centered gospel. Just like I mentioned a moment ago in Ephesians. I want you to just think about that letter. We've said this many times, but let it sit on you right now. That letter to the Ephesians, six chapters. And he's writing to people that have a church, that have elders in the church. This is a good church for the most part. He's writing to this church and he spends the first three chapters. He spends a lot of ink doing what? And in the first three chapters, he gives no commands except one. And that one command is remember that you were lost, that you were in darkness. But he spends three chapters of look at Christ Jesus. Look at what he's like. Look at what he has done. Look at who he is. Look at what he's done for us to redeem us and reconcile us to himself. Look at what you have in Christ Jesus purchased for you by Jesus. He spends three chapters doing that. And then he says, Amen. At the end of chapter 3, in the last three chapters he spends going into the practical, there's 50-something commands that explode out of that. And now let's talk about what you must do. And I say that to say there's going to be this constant pull for the way we think and the way we feel and the way we preach is to only get the last half of Ephesians and to miss the first half of it. To not see Christ Jesus and Him crucified, Him exalted. There will always be a pull. To make the gospel more man-centered. There's also always going to be a pull to make the gospel nicer. Or to make it more acceptable to the world. There will always be a pull to make the gospel more acceptable to the world. Think about it. If you use that outline that many of us use to think through the gospel. God, man, Christ response. The justice of God. His holiness. His just wrath that is coming. The desperate uh, depravity of man. Before this God, we deserve nothing but death and hell. Christ, who has come to save sinners like us, crucified at the cross, bore our wrath, bore our sin. And the response is we must repent and believe in Him to be saved. If you use that outline, think about how the world is constantly pulling on you to make it nicer, to make it more acceptable to the world. You know, man, that point, man's not that bad. He's not all that bad. When the gospel says he's desperately depraved. You know, God, he's not that angry. He's not that mad when the gospel says God is a just judge who is angry with the wicked every day. Christ, he's not that glorious. 
He's a man who came and did some good things, but He's not that glorious. He's not the God-man that came to save and rescue. And the response, you know what? The response is not even that necessary. You don't need to respond. God's a loving God. You'll be fine. Rather than the Gospel saying you must repent. You must turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Gospel distortion. Here's what I'm trying to get you to think about. Grace Community Church, don't move away from the hope of the gospel. And there are a variety of gospel distortions that would move you in that direction. More than you can count. More than you can study. More than you can wrap your mind around. So what do you need to do then? If you can't study all the gospel distortions that are out there, what should you do then? I say dig your heels in so deep to the sound doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ found in His Word that you will never move away from the hope of the gospel. Dig your heels in deep. Think about Paul's deathbed words to you. Think about Paul's deathbed words to you. The gospel is being attacked. Grace Community Church, the gospel is being attacked. There's temptations to lead you away from it. Do you know that? And listen to His words to you. Study. Study the Word of God. Study to show yourself approved to God. A worker that doesn't have to be ashamed. Rightly handling, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Continue in that which you've learned. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Equips you for every good work. Study the Word of God. That's the charge to us. Don't be moved away from the hope of the gospel in doctrine. Therefore, do what? Study the Word of God. Dig your heels in deep. Know the Scriptures. And don't just do it for yourself, for your own personal safety. But do it for the church. Do it for the protection of the church. And generation after generation after generation in this church until the Lord returns. Go after the Word of God. 1 Timothy 3.15 It calls the church the pillar and ground of the truth. That's what she does. She holds up truth. So it's not just about you personally, but protect the truth of God in His church. Colossians 1 says, don't be moved away from the hope of the gospel. And just a little bit later in Colossians it says, listen, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you abundantly. Let God's Word seep through your veins. Brother and sister in Christ, are you a student of God's Word? Are you a student of God's Word? And if not, you are in danger of moving away from the hope of the Gospel. You need to feel that danger. Let me give you another thought. Just to go alongside this morning, same morning. Don't move away from the hope of the Gospel in doctrine. Here's another thought to go along with that. I want you, in two words... Bold Bereans. I want us to be here. Bold Bereans. By Bereans, I'm speaking about Acts 17, 11, Where it says those Bereans, those people, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the word with readiness and they searched the scriptures daily. They searched the scriptures daily to see if what even Paul said was true. They searched the scriptures daily. They were very unlikely to be dislodged from the hope of the gospel because they searched the scriptures daily to see if what he was saying was true. So with Satan's schemes all around us, 
Gospel distortions all around. Some you know about, some you don't know about. Do you feel this morning? Do you? How are you doing it being a Berean with the Word of God? Receiving it with readiness, searching the Scriptures daily to see if it's true. And notice I put two words there. Not just Berean, but bold. A bold, I want us to be bold Bereans. In response, and don't shift from the hope of the Gospel as an individual and as a church. I want us to be bold Bereans. Bold in standing for truth. Bold in speaking out against false doctrine that seeps into our midst to destroy us. I want us to be bold in that. And to encourage you in that, I want, to, I want you to turn to Galatians with me. Go to Galatians chapter 1. I want you to see the boldness of Paul. And his call for us to be bold to stand against false doctrine from the letter to the Galatians. Chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and returning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. And one thing I want you to see here, it is the church's responsibility. It is the church's responsibility to guard sound doctrine in our midst. It's the church's responsibility to guard against False doctrine seeping in among us. Notice he's not just writing to the elders of the church here. He's not just referencing the pastors here. The pastors have a role to play, a heavy role to play, no doubt. Titus 1 9 it speaks about the role of a pastor is, is, is that they are able to hold to sound doctrine, hold fast to sound doctrine so that they can rebuke those who contradict it. But the responsibility given here is not just for the elders of a church, the pastors. Of a church, but the responsibility is given to the church. If anybody comes to you with any other doctrine than this gospel of Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. I don't care if he's an angel from heaven. And then Paul goes on to give his own example. Go to chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. Yet because of these false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. See, those people wanted to move them away from the hope of the gospel. They wanted to move them away from the hope of the gospel. So how did you respond, Paul? Verse 5. To them we did not yield submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Did you feel that? Do you feel that in your bones? I want to be like that. Some people think we should not argue at any cost. But there are some things that you should look somebody out. You should not yield submission to them for one moment. Not one moment. And one of those things is the truth of the gospel. That it might be preserved. That it might continue on in this church to our children and children's children. One more place in chapter 2. Verse 11. 
But when Cephas came to Antioch, so Paul says, even when Peter came, even when he came, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back, separating himself, fearing the circumcision part. The circumcision part. He did not walk in a way that's in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what does Paul do? He opposes him to his face. And so what I'm calling us into is to be in response to this warning. Don't be moved away from the hope of the gospel. And in response to that, Grace Community Church, be bold Bereans. Be like Paul here in Galatians. One last point I want to make before we move to the affections. When you, when you think about not moving away from the hope of the gospel in doctrine, I want you to think about it like this. There's a way that you can on paper have sound doctrine. On paper have sound doctrine. And yet in your emphasis, in the things that you emphasize... You could be off, terribly off. So listen to me. There's a way that maybe you've not been removed on paper in sound doctrine, but what you emphasize has been deterred, has been moved to something else other than that which is most important. Think about it like this. Go to Romans 14. Romans 14. First thing I want you to see that there is such a thing in the scriptures of essential things and non-essential things. Or maybe you can say it like this. There are primary things in God's word, primary things and things that would be considered secondary compared to the primary. So there are categories in God's word of primary, secondary. Look at Romans 14. I'm going to read verse 1 through 5. Look at it. As for one who is weak in faith... Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. The word opinion, some versions say over disputable matters. Not to quarrel over opinions or over disputable matters. What do you mean? Verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. You compare, compare the way he's talking about these disputable matters, these secondary, non-essential issues in the Scripture, and then pull that over and think about 1 Corinthians 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he speaks about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he calls it that which is of first importance. That which is of first importance. And when people begin to mess with the gospel of Jesus Christ and say that there is no resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he attacks it full flesh. He doesn't say, hey, let them believe what they believe and you believe what you believe. He didn't say that like he does in Romans 14. Rather, he goes on the attack and he said, that's wrong. It's a lie because there are things that are primary that you fight for, you go to war for. And there are things that are secondary or non-essential that you don't. And so the way Romans 14 tells us to deal, just very quickly, how does Romans 14 tell us to deal with the non-essentials? How does it tell us to deal with the opinions? It says this, let each one of you be fully convinced in his own mind. 
Verse 12, as those who must give an account of himself to God. You've got to give an account of yourself to God. Therefore, let each of you be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, in dealing with secondary matters, that would almost seem like bad advice. Think about it like this. You guys are arguing over secondary issues. You would think he would come in and Paul would say something like this. Hey guys, just don't worry about that stuff. Nobody worry about any of it. But rather he says, I want each of you to be fully convinced in your own mind. And so it's not that we back off from the truth. We dive in. We dig our heels in to everything. What does God's word say? Be fully convinced in your own mind about what you should do. Whether it's in these essential things or non-essential things either way. But, but here's this category. You have to have a category that there are some things that are primary and they're worth going to war for. And there's some things that you don't place on your brother or sister's back. And here's why I'm saying this. Go back to our warning. Beware of shifting. Listen to me. Beware of shifting from the hope of the gospel by becoming a secondary issue Christian. Beware of shifting from the hope of the gospel by becoming a, a secondary issue church. May we be a church that lifts up Christ Jesus, the Savior, the Lord, lovers of Christ, seekers of Christ, worshipers of Jesus, lovers of that gospel. May we be known to die on that hill. Let's go to the affections. Beware of shifting from the hope of the gospel, not only in doctrine, but in your affections. One thing that made me think about the affections here is it says the hope, the hope of the gospel. That word hope, that word hope pulls in some affections to the way you think about the gospel. In other words, it's one thing to understand the gospel. It's another thing to find hope in it, rest in it, comfort in that glorious message. It's where hope pulls in the affections. Don't be moved away from finding real hope in your affections in the gospel. What are the affections and why do they matter? What are the affections and why do they, they matter? Affections are those affections are those uh, inward soul responses to the truth. It's those inward soul responses to the truth. These inward soul responses are found all over the Bible. Here's what I mean. We are not just called to understand, understand who Jesus is, but we're called to, here's the affections, enjoy Him. Rejoice in Him. Find joy in Him. Love Him. It's the affections. We're not just called to understand the gospel but we're called to find comfort in it, to be satisfied in it, to love the gospel. This is all over the Bible. Language of the affections. Even on things that are negative, like our sin. We're not just called to understand our sin, but to hate it. To despise it. It's the affections that we feel, the soul responses to the truth of God's word. So these are their affections. Now, why do they matter? Why do they matter? Because you glorify that on which you pour out your loving affections. Do you know that? You glorify that which you pour out on 
You pour out where you pour out your love and your affections is what you glorify. Now we can spend the whole rest of our time me trying to prove that from God's word. But let, me, let me give you one simple little nugget to see that. Anybody know the reason we exist? The reason we were created by God? Anybody know? Glorify God. We exist. Isaiah 50, 43, 7 and several others. We exist to glorify God. And so when Jesus gets this question, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What do you expect Him to say? Don't you expect Him to say, glorify God. That's the greatest commandment. And yet He says, love the Lord your God. He takes this affection-packed word. And He says the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength because that on which you pour your affections is what you glorify. This is why it matters. You exist for His glory. And so your affections matter. So let me ask you that. Think about this. Don't shift away from the hope of the gospel in your affections for that gospel. In your affections for Christ. So how are your affections right now for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Self-examination. How are your affections for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do those magnificent truths, truths that are there, do they still melt your heart before God? They still melt your heart before God, or has your love grown cold? Have you lost your first love? Remember Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, you got that group of people. It says that when these false apostles come in with their false teaching, they're able to shut it down because they got sound doctrine in that church, and yet they had what? Lost their first love. How are your affections? For Jesus Christ. And if you moved away in your affections, I want you to feel this morning that you're in grave danger. You're in grave danger of moving away from the hope, the hope of the gospel. And so the scripture says this Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. Now, here's the thing. As we talk about affection, that really pulls us into talking about not just the doctrines of Christ, but the person of Jesus Christ Himself. So when you think about the affections, that pulls us into thinking about the person of Jesus Christ. The man Christ Jesus. The person of God. Who He is. Not just about Him, but He Himself. Jesus. The affections that we have do not come to their highest peak. Our affections don't come to their highest peak over doctrinal statements, over theology books. They come to their highest peak over Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our living God. That's why our affections hit their highest peak. I want you to think about Psalm uh, 63, 1 it is. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. He's not saying that about a doctrinal statement. He's saying that about a God, the person of God. Colossians 2, if you're still there in Colossians. Colossians 2.19 is, is pretty much just, it's, it's just another way of saying our warning today. Our warning today is not, is, is not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Don't do that. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Well, here's another way to say it in verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19. And not 
holding fast to the head. That's Christ. To shift from the hope of the gospel is to no longer hold fast to Jesus, the person. Not just the things about Christ, not just the doctrines of Christ, but Christ Jesus, the living God. So not hold fast to Him. How are your affections for the person of Jesus Christ? Self-examination. How are your affections for the person of Jesus Christ? How, how is your longing for Him? He Himself. My mind immediately goes, I can't help it, to Moses in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. When God says, look, these people have sinned against me. These people have sinned against me. So y'all can have the land. Y'all can have protection. Y'all can have provision. You can have all of that. But God says, I'm not going into that land with you. And Moses weeps. Oh God, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't bring yourself from here. Oh God, show me your glory. It's you that I want. It's you that I want to see, oh God. My soul thirsts for you. How are your affections for the person of God? The person of God. J.I. Packer, in this classic book he wrote, Knowing God, he frames it up a little differently. I want to read to you a couple things that he says. He frames it up like this. The difference in knowing about God and knowing God. This produces these affections for him. The difference in knowing about God and actually knowing God. Let me read you a couple of these. If we pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it is bound to go bad on us. To be, preoccupi to be preoccupied with getting theological knowledge as an end in itself. To approach Bible study with no higher motive than a desire to know all the answers is the direct route to a state of self-satisfied self-deception. There can be no spiritual health without doctrinal knowledge. There's no doubt about that. But it is equally true that there can be no spiritual health even with it, if it is sought for the wrong purpose and valued by the wrong standard. You see what he's saying? The difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Then he digs into Psalm 119 where you have all this praise for sound doctrine in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. Oh, how I love your word. And he says in that psalm, his supreme desire, the writer of the psalm, his supreme desire was to know and enjoy God himself. And, be and he valued knowing about God, knowing about God simply as a means to this end. Let me continue down the page a little bit. Our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God himself the better. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. He is the subject of our study and our helper in it. So He must be the end of it. We must seek in studying God to be led to God. It was for this purpose that revelation was given. And it is to this use that we must put it. One more. Interest in theology and knowledge about God and the capacity to think clearly 
and talk well on Christian themes is not at all the same thing as knowing Him. We may know as much about God as Calvin knew. Indeed, if we study His works diligently, sooner or later we shall. And yet all the time, unlike Calvin, might I say, we may hardly know God at all. You see the warning that's getting put out there. The difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Do you know God? Do you know Him? In such a way that these affections fall out. Listen, church, don't be moved away from the hope of the gospel in your affections. Know the hero of that gospel. Let me close with just a couple practical things here. One is this. How do you take heed to the warning? How do you take heed to the warning to not shift from the hope of the gospel doctrinally? How do you take heed to that warning? And my encouragement to you would be study the word, as we've already said. Study the word diligently. Study the word passionately. Uh, uh, Ezra 7.10, it says that Ezra set his heart... He set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. As a passion for the word of God, not only for himself that he might do it, but also for those around him that he might teach it. How can you ensure that we as a church wouldn't shift from the hope of the gospel in doctrine? Study the word of God. Please resist Satan's lies. That God's word and the study of God's word is only for pastors and professional theologians. Resist that lie. Acts 17, 11 says you must be like the Berean, right? Who search the scriptures daily to see if what they say is true. You have the spirit of God dwelling in you. The same spirit that any pastor that you know has in him. Same spirit of God dwelling in you who promises to teach you. So study the word of God. And the second question, how do you how do you heed the warning to not shift from the hope of the gospel in your affections? How do you heed the warning to not shift from the hope of the gospel in your affections? Or if I'm going to use, if I use J.I. Packer's framework in his book, how do you move from knowing facts about Jesus to knowing Jesus? How do you move from the facts of Colossians 1, verse 12 through 22, where Jesus is exalted, to knowing the Christ of those facts in such a way that affections for Him are produced? How do you do that? And I give you a quick, very quick, just meant to stir your thinking and make you ask the question later on. Two-part answer. First part is this. So how do you keep from moving from the hope of the gospel in your affections? What are some affection eaters in your life? You need to identify them and you need to kill them. And you need to know this. That sometimes the worst enemy against your hunger for God, the worst enemy against your affections for God, are not always the most blatantly evil things. It's those little things that you nibble at in this world and you get your belly full on those little bitty things and no affections left for Christ Jesus, no hunger left for Him. And so what are the affection eaters? What is eaten away? What Your affections are landing somewhere. What's eating up your affections that you could identify and kill? That's the first part of my answer. I encourage you to think. 
Second part is this. How do you move from knowing facts like Colossians 1, 13-22 about Jesus? How do you move from knowing facts about Him to knowing Him in such a way that affections are stirred? And I'm just going to I'm just going to leave you. I'm going to leave you with an answer from J.R. Packer in his book. And I'll pray for us. Let this stir you to think deeper about it, please. How are we to do this? How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is demanding. But simple. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. What about taking every truth about God and rather than just landing on sound doctrine, that you take these things before the living God in the secret place of prayer and you begin to worship and you meditate and you think and you commune with God over these things until your heart praises His holy name. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I pray for every individual here, especially for us, Lord, as a church. Please, God, do not let us shift from the hope of the gospel. God, I pray that you would set the truths there before us clear. God, throw an alarm in our heart every time something arises that speaks out against the truth of your gospel, Lord. God, make us warriors for the truth in this church, Lord. Protect us, God, from plausible arguments and being deceived, God. Protect us, please. Keep us from it, Lord. Lord, I pray that if, if you tarry, Lord, if you don't return, Lord Jesus, in the coming generation, that I pray, God, that the next generation, the next generation, the next generation of this church, God, that our children and our children's children would bring glory to your name and sound doctrine. Lord, protect them, please. And I pray that you make each one of us defenders of the truth, workers for the truth. And Lord, I pray for our affections, Lord. God, please don't let us sit in dead Doctrine, Lord, having lost our first love. Stir our hearts, oh God. Lord, for most of us here, God, can think of times where our hearts were melted over your truth, God. Where we loved your truth. And even more than that, God, we loved you, Lord Jesus. Just you for who you are, God. And seeing you, the greatest treasure that we can ever imagine. And God, it still is. But I pray, Lord, that you would protect us, God, from moving away from that, God. That you would protect our affections, God. That you would yank us out of coldness. Don't let our hope dry up. But let us be fiery hot in our love for you, Lord. Protect us, God. Protect this church. And help us to heed this warning. In Jesus' name. Amen.